My collaborator today is Rhonda V. McGee, author of the recently released book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, which looks at the way mindfulness supports us in the work of social transformation. As a practitioner, Rhonda is one of those people who really walks the walk, and that shines through in this invigorating conversation. Rhonda begins by laying the ground, what is mindfulness, and how does it serve us in waking up to and being present with racial distress and inequity. She then speaks to the tools that support our practice and help us in this task of being present and aware, from humility to discernment. This includes clarifying the difference between judgment as a knee-jerk reaction versus clearly seeing when harm is being done, and the complexity of systems and the impact that those systems have on us as individuals. Rhonda is clear to say that this does not absolve us of responsibility, but helps us to cultivate compassion as we recognize that we are all subject to the same systems, while also having distinctly different roles to play in dismantling them. Regardless of the role that we are playing, Rhonda clearly explains how mindfulness supports us to make intentional, meaningful, personal changes that will have a larger social impact. Content notification, the F word pops up in this episode because it's the title of one of the chapters in Rhonda's book. Thank you so much for making time, Rhonda, to collaborate with me uh, on an episode, especially because you're like right in the midst of a book tour. (laughs) Thank you, Caitlin. I'm very excited to be talking with you and happy to be here. So I always start with the same question, and it's really a question to establish some sense of a person's background and what it was that brought someone to the work that they're doing in the world. So I like to phrase it in this really Buddhisty way of what was your experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering, but it's really just like, what was it that was sort of formative for you in getting you onto the path of where you are now with your practice and the work that you do in the world? Mm, That's a really rich and great question. It's hard to pinpoint a particular moment because in a certain sense, I feel like I have always had a a kind of awareness. I mean, what I mean to say by that is, you know, even as a little girl, I have these I have these recollections of just being the kind of child who was given to reverie and not just to daydream, but to like, just sort of be feeling that um, the experience that I might be having or that I was having, and it was often, especially when I was a little girl, some painful experiences. I always had the sense that um, there was more to life somehow, you know, so some of that I, I actually feel like had to have been somewhat inborn, at least some way in which I was turned in the direction of being prone to reflection and uh, some level of kind of meta awareness. Mm. And then, but then I also had a grandmother who modeled a certain kind of disciplined daily practice that also gave me a sense of how one might incorporate that kind of way, you know, sort of specific intentional commitments and regular practices to support a certain kind of way of being in the world. My grandmother's way was Christian influenced. We were both born and raised in the South. And so hers were definitely influenced by the kind of prophetic Christianity, even fundamentalist Christianity, frankly, that had been common to formerly enslaved people for some time in that area, right? So mm-hmm. as an African-American woman, um, child, actually, myself, watching my African-American woman grandmother, you know, I could see her own 
daily practices and the way that they supported her in grounding in a, herself, right? Grounding in her own sense of value and purpose and intentionality and some capacity to serve, even though her formal work in the world was not glamorous or particularly well regarded. She cleaned houses for people and worked in tobacco fields before that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so, so, you know, both my, I guess, innate orientation, but also some of the ways that I saw a modeling of, of contemplative practice as a kind of set of commitments and disciplines, if you will. I think those were the things that were, were in me. And then, you know, at a certain point in my early adulthood, right after law school, when I moved to California from the South and um, was embarking on my career as a, as a lawyer, I started really recognizing that, um, that I needed a little bit more support for working with my own kinds of suffering or the suffering that I was experiencing. And, and I just knew that I wasn't alone. And I knew that there were probably, again, some practices that could be of, of benefit. And I just started seeking from there. I just want to say you have an amazing mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. When you were at Santa Fe and uh, at Upaya in Santa Fe, that was something that so many of us spoke about from watching you and like being in the room with you while you were leading us in this exploration you were taking us on. And we were all like, wow, mm-hmm. like the way you create a pause. <laughs> mm-hmm. just, so for me, like it was really beautiful to see it modeled so well. And, and also really wonderful because I I feel like quite often in any spiritual modality, you have a lot of people who talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Yeah. So it's always really lovely to see someone who walks the walk. And Mm -hmm. it's also like we're in this time where mindfulness is trendy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So because it's trendy, that also means it gets used incorrectly. So First thing is, could you define mindfulness as you understand and relate to it? So, you know, I do think of mindfulness as a term that that refers to a certain kind of meditation practice on the one hand, right? So mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's just pointing to a kind of a set of types of meditations that might fall within that umbrella. But mindfulness as a way of being in the world, and I guess the core aspect of the practice itself, is um, something that I often define by reference to a definition that I picked up from John Kabat-Zinn and maybe have modified a little bit, and there are other teachers whose, whose voices are in there too for me. But basically, the, it's really the practices that support being present heightening our awareness and doing so on purpose. So with intentionality around that and also doing so with a kind of a quality of friendly acceptance of what is present. And so there are, there are kind of practices that support developing that kind of way of being present with intentionality, purposefulness, and this kind of open-hearted, friendly willingness to be with what is. And so I think of mindfulness meditation as pointing toward those, the kinds of practices that support that. But I also think of mindfulness as the way of being with reality that results from those practices or Mm. often can result, let's say, from regular engagement in these practices. So when I use the word mindfulness, then it is really talking about 
those two d- dynamics or those two aspects, the practices and then on, on the one hand, and then the kind of way of being, the kind of approach to life, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and how we relate to our experiences that can flow from those practices. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so this is great. So you've got this new book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, and I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm really loving it. You know, I read a lot of stuff like this and I run in these circles where people are really working on racial equity. What does that look like? And I recently was having a conversation with someone who said, you know, people don't need more information. Mm. They need more ways to be in their bodies Mm. while they're doing this work. Uh, And and I I was like, right, yeah, because I'm one of those people, like, I love to read stuff because I I feel like the way that I process the information is a way for me to be in my body. Like, I'm going to take in this information and notice how it feels. But that's because I have an established practice around that. And I I think that this is what's so wonderful about these practices and about the way that you are speaking about it, right? Like being present and friendly, Mm. (laughs) having acceptance and intentionality and Mm. a willingness to be with what is, like all these things you've just Mm. said. So, you know, having embodied practice, particularly when we're working through things like implicit biases and racial distress. Yes. And how we've internalized our cultural and social conditionings. Mm -hmm. So what has been your own experience of getting out of your head and dropping into your body for this kind of work? Oh, yeah, that's another great question. Yeah, it's a great question because it's not easy. (laughs) Even, even, Even when hearing you speak back, accepting the experience or allowing the experience with a certain kind of friendliness, many people would hear that and think, wait, why would I ever try and accept my own biases or my, you know, <laughs> what I know about racism, with friendliness, and like, why is it, why, why would I accept and allow? So I think it's important to underscore that the idea and the experience is one of not wanting to be at war with what is, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. So being present enough to understand and to know from the inside out what's really happening. And this does not mean that we are from that point not then going to discern some moral perspective that might govern what action we might, we might want to take next, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to be engaged in the world, right? It, does, right? it, it doesn't mean that we're being pacified. It doesn't mean we're accepting what we're feeling forever and never going to try and do what we can to ameliorate suffering. Instead, it really is about just pausing long enough and deeply enough to deepen our own understanding and our own capacities for wise action in response to what is. And for me, I mean, I started engaging with, so as an African-American woman who grew up in the South, as I talk about in the book, they're just my entire life, really. I mean, I talk about certain episodes in the book, but, you know, throughout my entire life, in some way or another, I have been met with all kinds of messages and conditionings around identity and value and worth in my experience of our culture. So whether that was in the South for a while and then moving out West um, as a young adult and up through to now, you know, so I've just had so much experience that has been in some ways obviously more or less obviously about 
how the world and individuals within it meet me or see me through lenses that are inflected by these notions of identity. So part of it for me has to do with the fact of my own experience as a minoritized woman cisgendered female in this culture, you know, when you are in that minoritized position, right? When you are surrounded by people who are in a different set of identity box, you know, having having different identity experiences and who are more often in positions of authority or power, it's not unusual then for a person like me to be very aware mm-hmm. that race is present, that gender is relevant, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, And so knowing those things and then feeling the pain of being maybe rejected or minimized or disrespected in some way or abused in some way, finding some way to work with that was imperative for my survival, frankly, Mm -hmm. right? And so once I found mindfulness practices, I kind of very seamlessly started to apply them to the experiences I was having around identity, whether it be microaggressions. I mean, by the time I started to experience them, yeah, I I was in a context in California when I first took up mindfulness practice. And that's a particular, San Francisco, California is, is, is not Kinston, North Carolina, where I was born. And so the dynamics are different, but they're mm-hmm. not, um, but they, but let's say I'm going to use this, this sort of simile, they rhyme, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, it was kind of, even though it was not Southern racism, there were things happening that echoed and were very consistent with the sense that the trainings around racism and sexism show up wherever we are in the United States, maybe differently, wherever a person who is racialized and gendered in the way that I am and the way that I appear to be in the world, I'm going to meet, I have been met with all, with various experiences that reveal that these things are present, that people's notions about race and gender are present. So for me, it was very, just kind of seamless that I would then, having begun a meditation practice, bring that to bear to help me process and work with the embodied experience of being ignored at a at a place where I was shopping for a car, let's say, mm-hmm. um, having somebody hurl the N word, which I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who doesn't actually speak that word. I know some people do. I know there's a whole industry that does, right? people, you know, use that word all the time. Some people, do. I am uh-huh. not. But there I was in San Francisco, had that word word hurled at me on the street at one point, as I think I write about in the book. So. Those are just the kinds of examples. Those are some small examples of what I mean. And if you have begun, as I had, a meditation practice, you begin to realize this, this, is, a, this is an opportunity to pause, notice what is arising mm. when these experiences happen. Emotions, thoughts, sensations in the body. In my, again, in, my, in the interest of, for me, moving through those moments with as little debilitation as possible, right? And this is in service of, frankly, just really trying to survive more effectively. I just started bringing the practice right to bear. And then at a certain point, I realized because I was teaching about these things, by them having at a certain point moved from practicing law to teaching classes dealing with race and law, I just realized that the things that I had begun to do for myself to support my own work with these things in my own life my own healing, frankly, 
that these practices could be of benefit to my students and others as well. And so that began my own efforts and journey into bringing these practices more explicitly to bear in the teachings that I was doing at an American law school where it was not most particularly common. It certainly wasn't common when I started, and it's not even common now, but at least it's happening more that professors would bring some kind of awareness practice into the classroom. So I started doing that, and, and that was, uh, you know, some 15 years or, or so ago. And that is, in a nutshell, how I ended up coming to write, writing the book that I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's so much there. Um, oh, where to go next? <laughs> I think just to, like, speaking from that place of how the practice is really personal, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really common for teachers to talk about this important point of like that you start with yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're just saying how, like, don't be at war with what's happening. And that's yeah. part of that starting with yourself, I feel. And, and you have uh, in the book, there's one bit where you write, we should be open to being wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that just made me smile. Like, I was just thinking, like, yeah, right. Like, it, it's really easy for us to see where other people are messing up or they're doing things wrong and they should change. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Not very easy to yes. see yourself. Yes, it is. <laughs> right? Right. So easy. <laughs> We're expert in how other people should change, right? You really are. And if they would, then everything would be better. Um, <laughs> exactly. We could rest. <laughs> then we could just, oh, then I wouldn't have to do all this medicine. <laughs> Fixing of other people. <laughs> yeah. Right. And right. like, you know, I've been meditating for like over a decade and I, I hear this message all the time, right? Start with yourself, start with yourself. Yeah. But it's so habitual and so yeah. human to be like, I need you to change in order for me to be okay. Yeah, this and, is true. Yeah, and and so like, what has been your experience of letting go around that? Because that's mm-hmm. a you know that's that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> especially hard for someone who styles herself by day a law professor, right? <laughs> I yeah. am in the world, right, with a kind of role to assist people in some direct engagement. Improving themselves. Well, not yeah, and and the world, right? Mm-hmm. Through 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 changing law and policy, right? With a with a view toward alleviating some, you know, something that looks and sounds like what we call injustice or some, you know, some inequity. So I do that work, like you know, that's my job, and so it has been this interesting journey then of being mindful of how it is that on the one hand, we are called uh, as practitioners of mindfulness to deepen our capacity to just be with what is and to see the way in which ultimately our experiences in the world are so vastly interconnected and multi-level that the things that we think we quote unquote need to do or even the injustices we think we need to address are real and matter in a certain sense Mm -hmm. and are not entirely the whole story ever. (laughs) So, so living with a certain kind of ever complexifying set of paradoxes, right? Or a consciousness that apprehends that there are things that we in our everyday lives, encounter suffering that we encounter. And, you know, if we see ourselves in any way through the lens of the Bodhisattva, that we are here to help alleviate 
the suffering that we see in the world, there are things that we can do to, to, to support that. Feeding the hungry that we see, helping provide homeless for those who, are, who find themselves housing insecure or homeless, helping minimize the distress related to climate change, and yes, addressing racism as it intersects with all of those things I just named. Mm-hmm. So those are real, like it, that, that to me is like the opportunities to be of service in those ways to minimize human suffering and the suffering of the more than human world as well, you know, animals and other sentient beings suffering. I mean, these are actual things that we are, many of us who have taken up Buddhist practice and, and or mindfulness practices and commitments. We see these as just sort of part of what we would try to address to try to alleviate suffering that we meet. Um, that kind of suffering that is what we might call surplus suffering beyond the existential suffering of hatred, delusion, uh, ignorance, right? Attachments, the kind of basic sufferings that the Buddha talked about or the poisons that we think are at the core of, of how we all suffer. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's a sort of existential suffering that may come with being human in the way that we tend to push away that which needs to be um, embraced or attached too strongly to that which we need to let go or just operate in a fog of confusion and delusion and, <laughs> and ignorance. I mean, so those are the, seem to be core challenges that perhaps all of us share as human beings in common. Mm-hmm. We can experiment with that to see if that's true, how true that is. But this, this other piece is about what those of us who work in the area of social justice refer to as surplus suffering, or sometimes we use that phrase. In other words, to say there is that kind of basic existential suffering that all humans share, and then there's extra suffering that some people are experiencing more than others because of the way we, the various ways we have structured our societies and distributed resources through those societies and cultures. And the degree to which we, any one of us, is moved to work to alleviate our own suffering, the kind of existential suffering that I mentioned, you know, that varies, obviously, and the practices are there for us in that regard. And then if we are so inclined to also address this kind of surplus suffering, then we, you know, we have a really interesting, I think, lifelong practice curriculum, if you will. It's like we're always going to be learning and working with, exploring how it is to meet the call to act for compassionate relief of of the suffering we see in the world, how how we meet that with some integrity, how we meet it in ways that are not infused with a certain kind of egotistical attachment to mm-hmm. outcomes, right? So it's all, it gets, it can be quite complicated, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it is for me about realizing that, that, you know, we our embodied existence is real in a certain sense. We are here in these, you know, sort of carbon-based, <laughs> soft-bellied packages through which we experience the world. We actually are in each moment of our lives, met with the call to some sort of ethical engagement with reality. And so with every choice we make about how to be in the world, there's an ethical call there to, if we are conscious of it, do what we might to minimize suffering. And again, at the same time, because we never really 
have the whole story. We never know if we're actually minimizing suffering. And we can kind of already kind of anticipate that even with our best efforts, we will cause some harm mm-hmm. because inevitably to live is to consume things and mm-hmm. destroy things in service of our, you know, our own well-being, et cetera, et cetera. So humility with every step, being able to hold the both and and the, the many different paradoxes, and also to take very seriously the call to try to live ethically, but at the same time, not take ourselves too seriously and to live with intentionality and integrity, but also with lightness. Mm. And on and on and on, we are, I think, if we take up this, this level of um, commitment to, to seeking to, to live in ways that demonstrate ethical engagement in the world, it is always, um, it's an opening to, to ongoing learning. And so to me, humility and compassion for self and other are kind of the basic necessities <laughs> of getting up in the morning, <laughs> like realizing I'm going to try to do the best I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try to alleviate my own suffering and minimize the suffering that I impose on others. And I have to not take myself too seriously in that, in the sense that I, I don't want to reify in an egotistical way the sense that it's, you know, me doing these things, right? And this is where the humility has to come in Mm -hmm. so that we can let go when we need to. And honestly, you know, over time, it is is a very interesting thing how much the, the real work is to just be willing to do what we can and then let go and not feel so caught up, if you will, in even an identity that says, you know, I am the change maker, I am the justice bringer, you know? So yeah. all, so here we are, right? We just like, we do what we can, but then notice. Yeah, right? Cleaning comes in many forms. <laughs> yes. Right? And, and that opportunity to wake up mm. is always there. Mm-hmm. For me, in my practice, I really look at when you're, you're talking about those three poisons of passion, aggression, and ignorance. And like, I feel like ignorance is the slipperiest one and the most yeah. juicy for me to work with because yeah. how much it is about that, like, there's really that attitude, like it's other people, like I'm not willing to look at yeah. my own faults and really sit with them and figure out where do they come from and see how actually like, you know, in sitting with ignorance, my example that I use over and over and over again is as a Canadian, the way that I was taught about race and the way I was taught about like the Canadian identity is very much about how we're a mosaic. And that translates to we're not racist in Canada. And you see that Mm -hmm. often on the internet where someone will be like, well, Canada isn't. And, And I'm like, have you asked any indigenous people about how they feel right. about that statement? Because maybe as a white person, you don't actually have a good perspective right. <laughs> on it, you know? And of course, right now, as we speak, we are just in the recent wake of the blackface photos. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and this is that sort of thing that I look at it and, and that frustrates me because I, I see them just like, let's scapegoat this one white guy for doing blackface. And I'm like, could we have a larger conversation about the fact that in the early aughts, he showed up at a party and they let him in with blackface? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone helped him do that makeup because it was all over his body. He couldn't do that by himself. Yes, hold him accountable, but let's look at the larger culture and that that involves that really deep inward look. Mm -hmm. And 
so for me, okay, so here's another thing I, I, I find very juicy in your book <laughs> and, and also just juicy about practice generally. Yes, yes. Um, spiritual bypassing, right? Yes, yes. So in the face of difference of being like, hey, well, what about race or what about gender? A lot of Dharma communities, particularly white dominated ones, mm-hmm. the attitude is like, oh, well, you know, that's just a concept. Right, right. Therefore, it doesn't exist. You right, can't right. be found. So, and I'm like, and yet my relative experience doesn't stop existing or mattering. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So spiritual bypassing, like, like jump mm-hmm. over, jumping over the relative just to get to the ultimate, which I, I think is like a complete misunderstanding of it. Cause I, I see the yes. ultimate is being able to see the both and. Yes. So we have that in spiritual circles. Then we also have the, quite bluntly, whitewashing mm-hmm. of someone like Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And in your book, you put it that racism and white supremacy had not gone away simply because we had been taught under a twisted interpretation of Dr. King's inspiring words to be colorblind. Yeah. So it's the same attitude, like jumping over, right? Oh, when he said we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, it right, means right. the color of your skin shouldn't matter or yeah. not ex- or somehow become irrelevant, right? Yeah, we should never even, it becomes a badge of our moral elevation beyond race that we don't even mention or, you know, we, we, we don't even talk about race. Like we, you know, yeah. we are, right? And yet, of course, we know we actually are formed in ways that make us terribly aware of difference. <laughs> so it's this weird, yeah, but you're right. The culture has sort of trained us to, to kind of um, in the direction of this kind of what we see as like a, a kind of a morally superior um, unawareness of race or, uh, you know, like uh, sort of lack of, of any need to look at it. Anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted there. No, no, that's no, exactly. That's exactly right. Like, it's like we've reached, the, we feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so woke. <laughs> race has just ceased to be a concept, you know, like it's a, the spiritual body. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's just like a cultural way of yeah. doing it. So you talk about one of the essential ingredients of doing this work, this inner work of racial justice is about having a non-judgmental mind. So how do you cultivate that and hold that when you are in these spaces where you're hearing that kind of spiritual bypassing or colorblind claims? Right. (laughs) You know, it can be a challenge. Um, So first I want to just pause and step back and say, um, I'm using non-judgmental in a particular way. I mean to really define the the quality of reactive evaluation mm-hmm. that borders on the automatic and that doesn't brook much in the way of um again that humility that I was talking about mm-hmm. that sort of openness to being wrong that openness to sort of seeing the more that's always there so by I'm meaning judgment in a particular like a kind of a and I guess one other way to think about what I'm trying to get at here is to to name as a as a um, countervailing approach discernment. It's not that we are not coming to some evaluations and from that place figuring out how to act, how to be with what we see. It's just that we are noticing and pausing with the process by which we move from stimulus to response or stimulus to conclusion about where I might might want to take my action next. That to me is really 
moving us out of the kinds of judgments that get us into trouble, where we dismiss other people, stereotype other people, belittle other people, maybe even go into making fun of other people. These are the kinds of things we want to stay away from. Mm-hmm. And we, but the, but we're not saying, though, that we don't evaluate. Of course we evaluate. Course. I think moral conduct in, in, to say that part of what we are called to do as we engage in the world is to act from a moral or ethical standpoint is to say that we have some way of evaluating whether we think some behavior is harming or non-harming. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a dis- that's, a, that's a point of discernment. That's a you know, for reflective inquiry. And so I think that when we talk about non-judgmental, uh, it's a way of just bringing the processes by which we evaluate and come to some sense of what's called for here, that process might be infused with mindful reflection that really challenges the temptation to, um, to reactivity mm-hmm. and shifts us in the direction of more measured and intentional responses. Mm-hmm. Does that make some sense? Yeah, yeah well, like, it's exactly what I was just saying. Like, it's when we scapegoat the individual yeah. instead of looking at the whole right. culture. That's, that's well, a Reverend is, Angel quote, scapegoating the individuals and the culture goes away unscathed. Right. And let's see, how do I want to... So there's... Um, hmm, I'm pausing here because I think there's a little bit more complexity I would want to unpack with that statement. I love that particular quote from Rev Angel. And I think it's not that the individual accountability or individual, let's say responsibility mm-hmm. is not called for. Right. Yeah. It's just that in addition to looking at and calling, you know, looking at my own behavior and, and seeking to correct my own ignorance or delusion or temptation to scapegoat or minimize somebody else's stuff, whatever it is I'm working with, that is called for. And we are also calling for a broader look at what are the, you know, the sets of causes and conditions that contribute to this person's showing up in the way that he, she, or they are showing up so that it is not, yeah, we are, we are both looking at our own responsibility and accountability and calling ourselves to a higher, if you will, way of being with each other, a more respectful, more loving, a more compassionate way of being, uh, a will to self-correct as we go with <laughs> compassion for that ourselves. We're calling on that and mm-hmm. saying we have compassion for the fact that we've all been formed in the world, completely formed and supported in all that we're doing, harmful and non-harmful, by the environments and the circumstances we find ourselves in. And that, again, is where humility and compassion just, to me, just rushes in. It's like, yes, you want to have a conversation about how we can restore or repair or make amends, all those sort of juicy, difficult ways of responding to when we've messed up. Uh, but, but always with the kind of gentle holding that recognizes we didn't create this world. So we are, I think, if the temptation in our culture is to, yes, yeah, scapegoating individuals and leaving the culture unscathed or unreconstructed, then we're really, really missing ongoingly opportunities to ultimately minimize the likelihood that we'll just keep repeating these cycles of injury and repair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, holding the both end. And mm-hmm. so you have this one chapter, by the way, I love the chapter title, that is 
fuck and other <laughs> mindful communications. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think like that speaks to this, right? Like we have this sense yeah. that there are some like that, that uh, you know, I, I encounter this a lot that people take compassion, for example, mm -hmm. to be very soft and pliable and mm -hmm. like it's only useful in certain situations or available to certain people or like you can only have energy for it at the right time. And to me, I'm like, well, then none of those things are compassion because my experiences of true compassion can be incredibly fierce yes. <laughs> right? yes. and also incredibly energizing actually yes. like when I'm coming from a place of compassion I feel like yes <laughs> you know in other words sometimes it's not like it's not compassion is not code word for like whatever that nice yeah being nice yeah <laughs> That, you know, it's, it's, it travels, especially with some types of ways that some of us have been trained and, you know, acculturated. Like, I'll invite those who are listening to reflect on, like, how, what, what portion of our, each of our trainings and received teachings about how we're supposed to be included, like, a big dose or certain dose of, you know, you got to be nice and you got to yeah. constantly be looking for that. And, right? That. Because there are patterns around who who has to be nice and who sort of gets a pass and mm -hmm. we're talking gender here we're talking the intersections between gender and race all of that and so and class and all of it all of it so there's so much so much to unpack there religion all of this many many different let's say sources of content and and formation and conditioning around this thing called nice <laughs> but what it can do is really um prefigure or predetermine the way we meet, let's say, fierce compassion, strong emotion, mm -hmm. like anger, like rage, even frustration. And again, bringing mindfulness in invites a recognition that emotion is simply a kind of embodied information channel, right? It's like mm -hmm. some sort of response in the body or, you know, a reaction, if you will, that's on the continuum of reaction to response embodied in a way that we can, the neurobiologist can help us unpack a little bit about what's happening when we feel something. But the bottom line is, it's a real experience of what is happening in our bodies. And the neuroscientists and neurobiologists will tell us, you know, the emotions that we feel happen for reasons and have been evolutionarily profoundly important. Mm -hmm to us surviving and, and learning and thriving and becoming the beings, the kind of incredible beings that humans are. So emotions, the entire range are there for us to kind of learn from and experience mindfully. And it's only though when we in cultures are given the message that certain emotions are bad and others are good, <laughs> certain are negative, others are positive, whatever it is, whether explicitly or implicitly, we get trained away from being able to experience strong emotion in ways that can help us grow, learn, develop, be energized, and be transformed by our experiences. So yeah, I mean, to speak of compassion, to speak of mindfulness is not to say that we don't feel deeply. I was actually speaking with one of my teachers about this recently. And the teaching that I got was indeed often with long practice, you become even more capable of like really feeling the entire range of things. And also with that deepening capacity to just feel, 
holding and experiencing mindfully, you're also very able to move through. You shorten the, the experience of whatever the kind of storm that might come. And, and I think that we are afraid of when we think about not wanting to make room for anger. People see, it, I think, have been um, led to believe that anger is the same thing as violence. It will lead to violence. Uh-huh. No, anger is an emotion. Mm-hmm. What we do in response to anger is, well, there's a whole range. It can be transformed very directly into the energy for loving engagement with something that we believe needs to be changed, mm-hmm. right? So this idea that it is inevitably something that is going to harm ourselves or others is, again, I think, something that we want to bring awareness to and really reflect on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Angel, to come back to Reverend Angel. Yes, great. Like, I listen to them a lot. Uh, they talk about your liberation is bound up in mine. And yeah. for me, this has been a really helpful teaching because I was like, right, we, you know, this is a group project. So what does liberation mean to you? Mm, that's such a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I write different things about it in the book. I think liberation is for me about having the lived experience of awareness of choice and not just awareness that we have choice, but capacity to act from that, from choice. And less than from a sense of constricted, overdetermined, this is how I need to be, this is what I must do. So for me, liberation is about both freedom from constriction and also freedom to live in a world from a place of this deepening and ever more richly complexifying sense that actually all things are connected Mm -hmm. and all Uh, all of us are connected. To me, liberation is that clarity that comes from the view that apprehends radical interconnectedness and the choices and the, in a certain sense, responsibilities that flow from the sense that we, that my liberation is tied up with yours, that my life is tied up with yours, that my capacity to be more fully able to choose and able to be free, it depends upon my willingness to keep expanding the circle of my concern and seeing how it all is interrelated. So it's, uh, it's like that. <laughs> it's kind of like that. <laughs> awesome. That's great. And so to close, uh, I leave some space for you to offer anything you would like to offer to listeners, anything mm-hmm. that you wanted to say, didn't feel like you got to say, or resources or yes. practices support anything. Yeah. Well, um, I, I guess I'd just like to encourage anyone who's within the purview of this conversation or within the scope of this conversation to feel encouraged to connect with me. I'm available at my little new website community, rondavmcgee.com. I am on like the different social media. So I'm very open to being connected and I think connection heals. And the other thing I would like to offer is a deep encouragement for, for practice and for practicing together. We, we live in a moment where we're so often encouraged to just go find an app, go somewhere and do something by ourselves. That's beautiful and also not, I think, in my own experience, enough to keep us strong and and whole and human. We need each other. And we especially need each other when we're trying to to, um, navigate a world of complexity and of great suffering. 
and that's kind of the world I find that is that it that we're all in. So we need each other, we need practice, and we need the two together. <laughs> so I offer those closing encouragements for finding communities of support and practicing in ways that feel friendly and supportive. Um, there are many, many ways to deepen and to grow and no single effort in the direction of compassionate holding of ourselves or one another is wasted. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Rhonda McGee's book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, is available at online booksellers or at your local bookstore or library. To find upcoming events and offerings from Rhonda, visit rhondavmcgee.com. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 